Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Yvette Hopkins, Executive Vice President of Shetland Space and Security, at the Shetland Space Center in the Shetland Isles. Prior to this role, Yvette was Theater J2, or Director of Intelligence for the U.S. Army Special Operations Command in Africa. Yvette served in the Army for nearly 30 years. She has lived and worked in over 30 communities across the world and has served in positions including brigade commanders of the nation's largest strategic counterintelligence brigade, as an operations officer and commander in the NATO intelligence units, and as the first female brigade S2 in combat. Yvette served in Germany when the Berlin Wall fell, Panama during the war on drugs, and Bosnia for Operation Tango the first operation to capture persons indicted for war crimes. She has three combat deployments and has been deployed in multiple declared hostile zones. Wow, Yvette, what an amazing life you've had. Welcome to Iron Butterfly. We are thrilled to have you. Megan, thank you so much for being so kind. It was nothing, trust me. Now, I appreciate you having me on the show. Really appreciate it. It is our pleasure. So we would love for you to share with us a little bit about how you found your way into the intelligence community and what your journey looked like along the way. Sure. So I found my way in the intelligence community very early on uh, when I was an ROTC cadet. And they have something in your third year of ROTC uh, where you go to advanced camp for the summer and learn all the basic skills of, of being a, an officer and being in the Army. And one of those days they have is, is, is the careers day. What they do is they have this huge round robin where you literally tired and hungry. You go around to each one of these stations and you know, you have this five minutes where Sergeant such and such will tell you about, you know, air defense or field artillery or administration. And I got to the military intelligence station and there was an incredibly enthusiastic sergeant who gave, who wove these incredible stories about, you know, spy catching and, you know, sort of 007 James Bond. And at that particular moment, <laughs> it absolutely captured my imagination. So my intelligence career is, uh, you know, it's responsible based on uh, an enthusiastic sergeant out there that um, captured my imagination. Wow. So tell me a little bit more about your journey through the intelligence community. Sure. So I think I always had a proclivity towards it. You know, my father was a uh, chief master sergeant in the Air Force, and all of the bases that we went to were basically electronic security commands. So there were always intelligence bases because he was an admin NCO with a, with a TS clearance. And I remember me and my best friend when I was uh, in Japan, in high school at uh, Misawa Air Force Base, we used to ride this bus, you know, uh, you know, it was the bus that went around uh, post. And we used to try and elicit information from, you know, the seamen and the, <laughs> and the, NCO, and the NCOs because there was this big... Uh, 
you know, a site called the Elephant Cage where, you know, all the Intel guys used to go to. So that proclivity, I think, started a long time ago. But once I became commissioned and, and went to, as most military intelligence army officers do, I went to Fort Huachuca and started my initial training there. And, you know, for six months learning about, you know, our, our, our tradecraft, the initial beginnings, and then just had a, a varied tactical to strategic career that, um, you know, I, I didn't hesitate one minute. Once I joined the army, I knew I was with my people and it's a very good journey. That's awesome. So I've heard you share that you originally wanted to be a pilot, but were deterred because you were a first. Could you tell us what you mean by that? And were there other points in your career where you were considered a first? Yeah, sure. So the school, the university I went to was Central State University in Ohio. That was a historically black college where in recent memory at the time, and, you know, this is back in, you know, 1392 when I was there, um, <laughs> you know, there had not been a cadet that was commissioned in the Aviation Corps, specifically you know, the rotary wing. And at the time, very few women were commissioned into the aviation branch. In fact, I believe the first class of women was circa, you know, commissioned officers into the Aviation Corps was 1986. And uh, despite the fact that I was enamored, you know, the previous summer with the the young sergeant who convinced me that military intelligence was the way to go, I did have a, was very curious about aviation. And despite the fact that I was, you know, the the cadet battalion commander had really good grades. I was really highly discouraged from going in into aviation. And I think looking back on it now, it was for several reasons. Number one, I think there was, you know, very few women uh, in that branch Mm -hmm. at that time. There was also very few women of color. And because it was a historically black college, I think there was a long history of cadets that came out of that and that were commissioned that went into things like the Signal Corps or the Adjutant Corps. And there's a very strong reason why that is. There's a long historical line for that. And then ultimately, although I loved my professor of military science, I I just think he was a very old think kind of guy, just like, hey, man, you know, women in aviation, too new, not going to happen. But I did stick, you know, I stuck my ground with the military intelligence, even though they tried to talk me out of that. And, and I don't say that to be, um, you know, negative or anything. It's just, you know, I think we as women are sometimes very discouraged and we shouldn't be. We should always, you know, achieve and go for our dreams, et cetera, et cetera. I think other times in my career, I did also find that, you know, my first duty assignment was as a brigade assistant adjutant in the 205th of my brigade in Frankfurt, Germany. And the wall was still up again 1,000 years ago. And I remember having to fight my way down to a tactical unit to be a platoon leader. And when I say fight, I mean, imagine me holding open the elevator as the deputy commanding officer left every night with my hands and arms blocking the way saying, sir, I need to be a platoon leader. I need to learn leadership and I need an opportunity to to prove my mettle. And there was just, you know, there was a little bit of reticence at the time because there were old seaweed units. So that was an example. I remember during the war on drugs, when I was a captain, you know, I had to fight my way to be the first, what we used to call, and I think they still have them. It's tactical 
analysis teams. And so I was the first woman in Central America to do that, specifically in uh, Honduras. Uh, and I remember they, they wouldn't send me. They wouldn't send me. And so I had to make an appointment. I made an appointment with the Deputy J2 of U.S. Southcom in Panama. And it's like, hey, sir, you got to send me. Send me. And his response was, you know, hey, but Captain Hopkins, you know, I can't see you with a weapon because it was a requirement then. And I looked at him. And I was like, hey, sir, you know, I'm in the army you know, for God's sakes, you know, carrying a weapon is no big deal. So, but again, I had to fight my way down to it. And so I ended up doing it. Of course, as you know, when, when, you know, uh, women are great soldiers in general are just put in in positions, you know, you, you rise to the occasion. And then really the other one I can sort of think of was, you know, I was asked uh, when I was a major to, to interview for the army's first striker brigade, which was uh, an infantry based brigade, highly competitive. I didn't actually ask to go, but I was asked to interview and I was offered the job and I was highly discouraged from very senior officers. And I think it was because we were gearing up for Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom. We could see the writing on the wall. It was happening. And they mm-hmm. knew I was going to be the first woman at that particular level, the brigade level in an infantry brigade. And I was going to go to combat. And I, I think that was part of the reasoning for discouraging me. But, you know, I said, thank you, but no, thank you. I was offered the job. I'm going for it. So I did. And I think, you know, bottom line to the, again, not, I don't want to be negative. I'm a very positive person, but I think the moral of the story really is, hey man, you got to do you, you know, people will tell you, you know, they'll throw up roadblocks, but if you feel it in your heart, I've said this before, I was so excited about the prospect of proving my mettle, not only as a leader, but as an intelligence professional that I would wake up in the morning and just jackknife out of bed with just complete, you know, excitement at this opportunity, knowing that, you know, yes, you know, I might be the first, but I might all, I might fail, but oh my gosh, what if I succeed? And of course you do. And so I just hope that anybody that's, you know, listening out there, particularly young women, please know that you got to, you got to do you and you got to, you got to go for it. And I, you know, that's that's what the women did before me. I hope that, you know, me and my sisters in arms and the colleagues of my particular generation were, you know, helped to open the door just a little bit for the women that I see today that I'm so proud. You know, we've got infantry officers, we've got infantry commanders, we've got women going through ranger school, we've got women spot special operators. And I just cannot tell you that not only myself, but I know every single one of my sisters in arms that are of my generation just have complete and utter pride and just take a tiny bit thinking to ourselves. We had a tiny bit to do with that, maybe. We just opened a little door and and, you know, it's just amazing to us. So, yeah. And I think it's not a little bit. I think it's you open the door pretty wide. And you know what I love about that answer is when you were describing, I, you know, what kind of kept you going. You said, you know, I wanted to be a great leader and I wanted to be a great intelligence professional. And you didn't use a woman intelligence professional or a woman leader. You were just a, a leader and an intelligence professional. And I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That was no wonderful. Yeah, I hope I didn't come off negative because I'm not negative about that experience. It just is what it is. It was a sign of the times and those times have changed. And so I'm so happy. No, I don't think that's negative at all. And, you know, I think there are still parts of the IC 
and the DOD that are still struggling in certain aspects. So it's important for, you know, men and women to hear those stories. So absolutely. You mentioned one of your first assignments was abroad in Germany, and you happened to be there when the Berlin Wall fell during an incredibly historic moment. Can you describe what that experience was like for you? Well, I was pretty young, and I had actually had the opportunity to go to East Berlin while the wall, or yeah, to East Berlin while the wall was still up. We had to go in uniform and you know take the train to get there. And it was you know just really a big deal. And what I remember about the wall coming down, first of all, you, you know the signs might have been there for more senior officers, but I was pretty young, uh, sort of you know tactical guy. What I do remember is the complete shock, and then all the parties that came afterwards. So <laughs> there was literally, literally dancing in the street. There was, wow. I remember, and I don't remember the exact date right now, but, you know, there was the formal when the wall was going to come down and, you know, people got in their cars and they drove to the to the line, to the wall and to watch it come down. And there was just, uh, it was complete celebration. Um, and it was end of an era, you know, it was end of, you know, a bipolar world where it was, you know, us against them, bad guys against good guys, good, you know, the whole nine yards, but comma, pause for effect. <laughs> we all know that that really, while we danced in the streets and had a great time, it really was, you know, there's always action, reaction, counteraction, right? And so we know that that was actually setting conditions for a much more complex world. I'm glad the wall came down, obviously, but um, it just meant that we as intelligence professionals actually had to prepare for, again, a much more complex world. So yeah, good times. Well, no, thanks for sharing that. So you have had some pretty unique opportunities uh, to serve with U.S. allies and NATO partners throughout your service. This might surprise some of our listeners because intelligence sharing might seem a bit contradictory. What were those roles like and why is intelligence sharing important? Yeah, so, you know, back in the way, way back, I just remember, man, you had, you know, it was U.S. intel and U.S. intel only, and it was, you know, tippy top secret to the 15th power, which of course, there is. Um, there's obviously a place for that in all of our respective intelligence communities. But when you fight together, you fight in a global way. So it's again, uh, if you go back to the your previous question about the wall coming down, and you know, sort of the bipolar world kind of went away. What that meant was we started to see more global threats, right? And as that kind of came to be, it meant that we had to really work not only with our NATO partners, our allies, but new partners, new friends that had different ways of, um, uh, of protecting secrets. But the bottom line is anytime you fight together, you must fight with the same vision, the same plan, the same, be on the same azimuth. And you can't be, hey, man. You're side by side. We're Shona by Shona. We're shoulder to shoulder. I've got a secret and I'm not going to tell you. You just got to trust me. Right. You know, you, you can't surge trust. Trust has to be built over um, time and trust has to be built with, you know, sharing critical pieces of information, training together. And that's how you're going to be, you know, stronger, faster, better than our adversaries that are that are in this world. So I've always been a, a very strong proponent of intelligence sharing to the maximum and, you know, also being 
you know, uh, obviously clear eyed about those things that you can't. But sometimes I think we as intelligence professionals will take the easy way out and just go, oh, I can't share that, as opposed to doing the hard work to figure out how you can, obviously, in a, in a, um, within the confines of our uh, regulations and our uh, rules and laws. But you've got to find a way, if it's pertinent to your uh, partner to the left, partner to the right, uh, if, they, if they are not U.S. or uh, closely allied. You also spent a portion of your career doing operational planning. Can you share with us how you got interested in intelligence planning and how that evolved into working with special operation forces? Yeah, so sure. Um, early 90s, I was, I was deployed to Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, and as part of that, uh, time there, there was something called the Allied Military Intelligence Battalion, and I was a, an operations officer there. And, uh, I was part of an effort to bring to justice the first, you know, person indicted for war crimes, or as we called it at the time, Pifwicks. Um, what was so unique about this was this was the first time that this type of operation was being executed while the indictment was sealed. So there was something called the ICTI, the um, International Crimes Tribunal of Yugoslavia, if um, memory serves me correctly. And so what they did, this was the first time they were going to seal the indictments, and then you could go get these guys, bring them to justice for war crimes. Um, and, and there were many war crimes that took place during that particular conflict. So um, I had a phenomenal opportunity at that time to work with, um, you know, special operations forces, uh, both um, U.S. and primarily U.K. Uh, in that particular effort. And I watched I watched the best. I watched the best and the brightest. And I watched uh, U.K. and U.S. planners and operators plan in a way that was so precise from national level responses. What should the president say? What should the queen say? Down wow. to the most tactical action. Which way does the um, door open when we've got a kick in the door? Which, you know, who's going to be uh, a my six, if you will. And so that level of precision that level of planning, that level of care to our operators, that level of care to the trust that was uh, entrusted us, entrusted to us by the um, by the ICTI. Um, I saw planning. You know, I was a young captain, and, I, and for me, uh, it just it blew my mind. And then the most important thing in that planning, of course, was the intelligence planning the intelligence gathering. So what had to take place to set the conditions, to understand if the conditions were right for all of these operations um, was really critical and important. And I think as a young officer, you know, you're a one trick pony, you know, you're, you know, I was a jamming platoon leader, you know, um, you know, um, this was an, uh, this was a absolute strategic to tactical um, operation, which took, um, for the first time, I was really seeing special intelligence, technical intelligence gathering means coupled with human gathering. And I saw all the, you know, quote unquote, ints coming together in a way that had absolute um, 
impact not only in a small way, but in a very geostrategic way. Um, and that for me, uh, I will tell you, absolutely captured my imagination. And from that, I went on um, several years down the road. I, I had not heard of a school called the um, uh, School for Advanced Military Studies. It's, um, it's a course that's specific. It's a year-long course after the Army Command and General Staff College that take a select few to really um, understand uh, the foundational and, and, and theory to planning and really uh, put you to work in understanding that. And it was that operation that made me uh, go after that particular position of which I was, um, or excuse me, that uh, uh, student post where I was um, uh, applied for and, is, uh, and was, was uh, allowed into it. All that to say, truly, um, I had... In that operation, I saw for the first time the best that the world had to offer in terms of operational planning. I say again, it was I was working with the best the world had to offer, and that's our our tier one uh, forces that were just phenomenal and and it made me understand in a very real way the impacts of um, strategic thought, but precision planning. Wow. Well, I can, I can tell by your description. I mean, you're getting me excited about it that I would <laughs> want to do such a job like that. Um, so I, I can tell how much you appreciated your colleagues and um, how much that job meant to you. Absolutely. Um, so your special operations career culminated as the J-2 or Director of Intelligence for Army Special Operations Command Africa. What was your favorite part of that job? And what was the most challenging part of that job? Girl, I'll just tell you, just saying those words, because um, it's, <laughs> it's still still pretty close, man. Um, it was challenging, but the most favorite part of my job was it was um, – it was a three-year deployment, and it was, uh, it, it, you know, when I think about my time in Afghanistan and, you know, tactically in Iraq, it, it, this was more demanding. It really was more demanding, but again, it was, a, you know, I find myself in, in these challenging jobs where you you may work 20 hours, but you are jackknifing out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning to get to the job again the next day and the next day because, it's um, it's it's probably one of my most favorite jobs, not only because of the job, but because because when I got to Special Operations Command Africa as my last job in the Army, I met my tribe. You know, I I, I really met my tribe and 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 just just had a phenomenal job but anyways so what what was my favorite part you know i had a sorry just i kind of i kind of waved off in there for a minute as i'm thinking about uh my time there no but uh, that's great yeah that's no it's, great. it was so challenging but so much fun but you know so my favorite job my favorite part i had a phenomenal um boss i had a leader who had clear vision um, of what we were going to do. And so there was no question uh, every day when I jackknifed out of bed, what was going to happen that day. And so, you know, basically his vision and mission was, you know, by, with, and through 
our African partners across sub-Saharan Africa, which is about 23 different countries, and through our U.S. ambassadors and embassy teams, basically to stop terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda, um, ISIS, Boko Haram, and all of their various affiliate affiliates. Um, we were very closely snap-linked in with our policymakers in Washington, D.C., and how that translated for me uh, was that that meant that I had to help my African partners set up uh, intelligence architecture. Uh, that meant everything from real architecture to um, uh, to processes, procedures. But don't get me wrong, I learned so much uh, from from my African partners about the threat uh, that was um, on the continent and 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 different ways to prosecute that threat. It also meant that uh, I had to be extremely collaborative with other um, intelligence professionals across several theaters of operations. You know, again, this is a global mm -hmm. uh, issue. Um, and we, you know, to get left of boom, to get ahead of our, our adversaries, our enemies in some cases, we've got to be global uh, in our, you know, the way that we're prosecuting the intelligence uh, fight also. So that, you know, is very much involved with, uh, you know, our, our DC agencies, um, as well, again, as, as our African partners, our embassies, as well as our other theaters, where we were watching the flow of foreign fighters, et cetera, et cetera. I also, you know, I love the way that, um, you know, when you go into other people's countries, you know, you can't be the pros from Dover telling people how to do their, you know, this is how you should do it. You really, you really yeah. have got to sit and listen and understand and be in, in it with them. Shona Bashona. And so I, I feel that we had, uh, you know, and, and, and my boss's name was General Bulldog. Um, he was really respected by our African Special Operations Forces partners. Um, he also knew his unit, knew his customers. And uh, when he traveled, I traveled. And there were incredible men and women um, who were doing, you know, you know, God's work, so to speak. And so for me, I just found that, you know, um, incredibly rewarding. Um, we set up entire intelligence units. We uh, got some of the most incredible uh, intelligence working with our, our African partners, which, you know, went to the highest, you know, to the NSC, to the president, so that they could make decisions. As, as we all know, um, intelligence is about decision making and ensuring that, uh, you know, decision makers have the right information at the right time in the right place. Now, challenges. Mamma mia. Yeah. Mamma mia. <laughs> I'm sure there's a list. <laughs> well, you know, uh, besides the, you know, 1,700 different languages and dialects that are spoken on the continent, I think, you know, there's lots of papers written about the tyranny of distance uh, in Africa, and, and it, it really is um, remarkable uh, when you when you take a look at that, everything from how we deal with our partners. If I wanted to meet face to face with, you know, I'll, I'll give you uh, one of my favorite. Uh, I consider him my favorite J two on the continent. His name was Colonel Lamine. Rest in peace. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. You know, here's this man in Niger. He was the J two of Niger. He had, uh, you know, he was fighting. Uh, 
Libyan forces in, in some ways to the north. So uh, ISIS on one side, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda through Mali on another side, Boko Haram, which at the time was um, the most deadliest terrorist organization on the face of the planet. You know, they don't get their due props for that. Um, but I think about that uh, man, and if I wanted to, you know, face to face with him, you know, it was, it was a 14 or 15 hour journey to get to him. Oh, wow. And then for him to get to think about it, he's surrounded three sides, right? And for him to get mm-hmm. to, 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 to see his troops or, or to coordinate even within his own country, you know, his own intelligence apparatus, it, it was, it, I mean, we're, these are huge, um, you know, ways to get there. They didn't, he didn't have a aircraft. He could just jump on and, you know, um, go visit his troops. So it was those sorts of things. It was time, space, resources. Um, and so that was a complete challenge. And then the one other challenge I would say, and again, not to be pejorative is our policy makers understood that there was, is, a terrorist problem in Africa, but it is an economy of effort for us. So so explaining to people the very complex uh, occurrences that were taking place that we were seeing as an intelligence um, apparatus and getting um, their attention so we can get the proper resources, it was was difficult. It wasn't impossible, but it's Mm -hmm. difficult. You know, it is what it is. But, um, but you know, I remember a quick conversation with Lindsey Graham, you know, when I was up on the Hill specifically about that. He acknowledged, he acknowledged it's, you know, it is a problem. He acknowledged that. But it was also very plain speaking about, you know, where money needed to be. And so um, it's just always a natural tension. Um, uh, you know, we can't be all places at all times, but, you know, being able right. to, to ultimately say, hey, man, we got a problem here. And we did at that particular time with um, ISIS growing quite and Al-Qaeda having competition on the continent. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. (laughs) No, that was great. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, now you are working in the Shetland Islands at the Shetland Space Center. How did you end up there? Oh, Megan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so after nearly 30 years in the military, I, I was exhausted. <laughs> you know, I was tired. Um, and so, uh, I, I am, um, I am Scottish by, by birth. And, um, I wanted to spend time with my family and my mother and my father and all my aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody lived in or lives uh, in the Shetland Islands in a tiny little village called Bigton. And so when I retired, I came home to rest and to take care of my parents and, you know, bond with my family, which um, many folks will recognize in the intelligence business or in the military business, man, you you, you don't, um, you're on the move. You're on, and you don't have an opportunity really to do that. So that was, that was a grand idea to kick back and watch the sheep and drink a few beers and connect with family. But um, um, early on, I read a newspaper article. Our local newspaper comes out once a week. It's a very small island. Um, 
And uh, I opened the page and there was this uh, article about a, a man uh, named Frank Strang who was going to um, start a space center. And, and I read the article and I said, hmm, I wonder if they've thought about this. I wonder if they've thought about this. I wonder if they thought about the counterintelligence there. I wonder if they thought about the cyber threat. I wonder if they thought about, you know, and I just, you know, started thinking through those things because this is what we do. We can't, we can't turn off our, you know, 30 years of an Intel career. Right. So I I called, I looked him up on LinkedIn and said, uh, Hey Frank, you got time for a cup of coffee. Didn't say who I was. He said, "I, I don't actually live on the Island, but I'll be there in two weeks. Two weeks came and went. Um, no call. So, you know, something else came up and I said, Hey, uh, Frank, you know, I, I missed you. Uh, you want to, want to get together for a cup of coffee? <laughs> so he blew me off a, a second time. Cause you know, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, I just, I just kind of said, um, the third time I said, you know, this guy probably thinks I'm a, a crazy whack job out of nowhere. I, I just, you know, kind of clipped my, you know, sent him a note, clipped my CV and said, listen, just as by way of just so you don't think I'm a crazy person, this is who I am. And, you know, I just want to help my new home, my new, you know, I just want to help. And, um, the next day he was in my kitchen. Um, and we were talking, you know, uh, I was on my way down on the mainland for something. He had come up and we spent an hour, hour and a half in my kitchen. He, he was ex-military, so as you know, British, obviously. Um, so as you know, no matter where you go, as a, you know, military professionals around the world, it doesn't matter where you're from, there's instant bond, instant connection. Right. And so from there, it's just been a journey and it's an amazing journey. The United Kingdom doesn't have, a, you know, they have incredible capability. University of Glasgow, for example, produces more satellites um, than any other city in Europe. University of Edinburgh or the city of Edinburgh um, has just poured, I think it's $350 billion uh, pounds into that city to become Europe's data-driven innovation center. So we have all these incredible things that are happening in the space industry. But there's no place to actually launch your own satellite, you know, so they go elsewhere around the world. So uh, Frank is an entrepreneur and um, had bought a an old RAF uh, airbase that's on the very most northern island of the United Kingdom. And the reason why that's important is because of the high latitude and the orbital access for low earth mm-hmm. orbit. And um, he bought it, turned it into a resort, and then had this great idea, I'm getting in the space uh, space race. And that's how uh, I met Frank, and we have all been thick as thieves. Um, and when I say we all, it's a small, dynamic, amazing team. Uh, primarily Air for X Air Force, of which I will not hold that against them. Although I <laughs> am merciless in teasing these flyboys and fly girls, um, but instantaneously there is a common set of values. Instantaneously, there's a common understanding of. Um, who we are, what we've done, a sense of professionalism, a sense of mission driven 
understanding that this is an incredible thing to do in a country that hasn't done it before. So um, that's how we met. And that's how I'm here now. So here initially to hang out, rest, hang out with my parents. And, you know, once the first thing Hopkins does is, you know, hook up with the most exciting, you know, earth shattering thing that's happening in the United Kingdom. Well, you know what I love about that story, especially for our kind of early career listeners, is that A, you looked him up on LinkedIn and reached out and said, hey, I want to have coffee with you, (laughs) which is a lesson in itself. And two, the perseverance. You didn't give up after, you know, you, you reached out, he blew you off, you reached out again, he blew you off. And then you were like, look, I just want to help you. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you how we can connect. Um, I think that in itself is a great lesson for our listeners. Yeah. So one thing I find interesting about your story is that you spent um, the majority of your childhood and much of your adult um, life abroad. How do you think spending time abroad changed your worldview? And how do you keep your connection to your American roots and the mission um, the American mission when you're so far away. Yeah. So keeping my American roots, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> that doesn't go away. Right. Uh, you know, I just, right. it, it, it is it, particularly when you, when you, you know, it's, it's blood, sweat and tears, uh, fighting for your nation, for, uh, the people to the left and right of you having seen in my life, treasure and blood spilt um in service to our nation you know that 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 will never go it's it's me it's it's who i am but on a very you know sort of uh practical level some of the habits that i've had my entire life have not changed i get up every single morning and i read uh, you know we're used to you know getting up reading the intel brief the read book whatever you want to call it but I, I get up every morning and I read, and it's primarily um, uh, on the U.S. side of the house. I mean, obviously, I'm reading everything everywhere, but I, you know, it, it's just me. It's how I start my day. It's just staying uh, extremely uh, connected, and I do that for about two hours, you know, early every morning. Um, then my my mentors. Uh, you know, I'm starting into the space, building a spaceport uh, with a phenomenal group of uh, men and women. You know, it's new. So I, I rely on, you know, my mentors to just go, okay, we're, we're at this point. What do you think? Can I just throw an idea at you? And my mentors are primarily the United States. Um, and I have continued those close relationships and they have continued those with me. And they're phenomenal human beings who... Um, who want to help Yvette and, you know, and, and thusly help, um, you know, whatever wild adventure she's on. And, and the Shetland Space Center is, is where I'm at right now. So that, and then my best, my best friends, um, they're all in the United States and, uh, particularly with the pandemic, you know, every Friday it's, um, it's wine time. Zoom time. Oh, you got it, girl. <laughs> Zoom and wine time. <laughs> and, you know, what I found, I remember somebody told me something a long time ago, which is, Yvette, when they stop calling, then, you know, you kind of, you, you lost your sauce, so to speak. And I, every, every day I'm on the phone with, you know, my old colleagues, you know, some of them retired. I still mentor my old, uh, you know, my old soldiers. I make myself very available um, uh, 
to folks. Uh, one of the nice things, though, is I've started to mentor, um, you know, Scottish women um, on this side of the pond. And, you know, when there's, um, you know, and that's just been really amazing. So I stayed very connected um, because in this day and age, we can. And then right. uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the second half of your question, um, and then how do I stay connected to the mission? Well, I think the Shetland Space Center really allows me to continue mission. You know, again, these high latitude offers great orbital access, not only for launch, but downlink. And ultimately, it's to be, uh, you know, you're part of something bigger than yourself. Make no bones about it. The Shetland Space Center, while it's, you know, it is it is about it, this phenomenal sovereign uh, opportunity here for the United Kingdom, you know, it, from day one, you know, Frank, the CEO, and I have always discussed about the phenomenal opportunities, you know, for both U.S., U.K., uh, and, and that's the way we've always continued doing this. So my expectation is, you know, there'll be a little tiny PX up here one day where I'll be able to get, um, you know, the items that I can't get here in this little lonely island in the middle of the Arctic, uh, subarctic uh, <laughs> archipelago, right? <laughs> So yeah, being a part of right. something bigger than myself is important. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and um, just, I want to touch about your passion for leadership. What is your leadership philosophy and how might you say your approach is different or unique from others? Yeah, well, first, I guess first and absolutely foremost, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that leadership is a lifelong pursuit of excellence. You don't ever attain, achieve, you're not like, right, I'm there, I'm done. It, it's just a lifelong pursuit of excellence. And then the second thing that comes to mind is for me, and that's it's always, always, always been a team sport. It's a team event uh, leadership. And yes, while it can be lonely at the top, and I've been very blessed to have had the opportunity uh, to be entrusted by um, by Congress and the American people to lead you know, from brigade level all the way down, I have never, um, never taken that for, for granted. And I've always considered that a team sport. But I think I started my leadership pursuit of excellence very early on. And, and, and back to this sort of team issue, you know, I was, I played a lot of sports when I was in high school, I did a lot of things in college, I was in student government, you know, captain of track, captain of cheerleaders, I know you'll find that shocking. You know, cross country, I was always a team sport kind of guy. And what does that teach you ultimately? And that's, you know, you're the, it's about, you know, um, the sum of all of its parts, right? Um, I do think in terms of leadership that you have to be extremely well-rounded. And what I mean by that is you have to be able to work vertically, vertically knowing what your boss, uh, what he or she, how they need to be communicated to, but also being able to translate um, to levels uh, below you. But also horizontally, I once had a, a boss um, that told me that, you know, you get promoted by your peers. And I didn't understand that at the time. But you have to be able to thought partner and work extremely well with your peers. And I know that sometimes that in the intelligence community that we can be, so, you know, what's what's the old saying? You know, what's the MI handshake? You know, you reach the hand out, shake, and then with the other hand, you're stabbing somebody in the back. And I never subscribe to that ever. You, you've got to be, um, you know, you've got to work horizontally and you've got to work broadly. And, you know, adjacent units, adjacent organizations, you've got to work imaginatively. 
you know, who else is facing this same issue I'm going through? You know, you know, is it somebody in academic academia? Is it somebody in industry? You know, um, but it also means being a, a, a follower. I'm clearly, you know, in many respects in my current position, a, a follower because I'm, I'm learning, you know, we're still in the up, uphill climb, although in many ways we are, we're setting some really phenomenal standards. But in terms of guiding principles for command philosophy, and I, I think your command philosophy changes with the organization, but there might be some guiding principles you always have. And for me, is you got to know yourself, you know, your strengths, weaknesses, limitations, and you've got to constantly assess yourself, you know what I mean? Um, but that also means assessing how you are being perceived. And I think that's really important, uh, particularly as you get more senior, because you may be in a moment of leadership and you've got to understand, like, there might be somebody else in that audience or in that cohort, in that group, where it might be a teachable moment for somebody else and not about you. And I think that's really mm-hmm. important. You've got to observe yourself sort of like a, what was that movie? Ghost, you know, almost like, you know, looking down on yourself. Like step out, yeah. yeah step out just, of and, of yourself. You got, you got to know yourself, man. Cause I'll tell you, you're going to make mistakes and you got to understand why you made those mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. I also believe that you're only as strong as the weakest person in your organization. I've always said that if you're on a run, you're on a, you know, old typical army run and you got somebody that's fallen back. There's a reason why we always turn around and come back and get that person. Always turn around. It's not to make them feel bad or whatever, but as an organization, as a unit, as, as, as a team, you are only as strong as your weakest person. So you've got to train that person. You've got to make sure that he or she is up to standard. I think that's really um, important. And then sort of two other thoughts and that's, you have to be generational in thought. How will this decision, how will this type of leadership affect those coming behind me? Not tomorrow, not next year, but multiple years from now. And, and that has driven me in many ways, particularly as a, as a woman and a woman of color you know, making sure that, uh, oh gosh, you know, here's that added burden of not just uh, being a leader, but being a leader generationally. And then I think you've also got to be global in thought. Um, so, and that really opened my eyes when, uh, you know, working with my, uh, you know, other partners around the world. Okay, listen, as sisters in arms, we've all sort of, you know, locked arms and try to help each other out, you know, at, at critical times and places. But again, it goes back to that intel sharing. You're only strong as, as your weakest uh, man or woman. So if your partners aren't where they need to be, um, what are you doing to reach out and help them? And I'll give you a quick example. We were invited by the Japanese um, jazz staff. I'm going to forget the, the terminology, but basically the chief of staff of the army, a small group of us to go over and talk to the military intelligence women you know, all 30 of them in their core, you know, it was really, you know, their officers. Um, and, and he was saying, Hey, I, you know, my women are, are dropping out of the intelligence core. Let's talk to them, please. I need help. And what it was, it's really fascinating. We all had this aha moment, which was, 
um, the, the Japanese don't have a, um, uh, uh, family care plans, uh, the way that we do, they don't have care centers. So, you know, a typical army couple, you know, might go in, drop the kids off, go to PT together, whatever that concept did not exist. And so, because culturally, um, that meant the, w- the women had to stay home. There was no right. mechanism. So the ability to say, hey, sir, you, you've got to start setting up mechanisms so that, you know, your women, they want to stay. They all want to stay. They would say, yeah, I remember this woman, woman was like, hey, I, my career is so much, you know, I, I'm the one that's, you know, that's that's going to go uh, catapult up. My husband, he's a great officer, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the one, you know, but, <laughs> but she's like, uh, you know, but he ain't going to stay home with the kids. So, so you've got to, you've got to do that. Or my, or a lot of my sisters in arms that I saw in Africa who just so desperately wanted to be a part of the team. And so you think about, you know, a hundred, you know, many, many years ago when we integrated the, you know, the wax, if you will, into the army, um, service and, and you know what that transition and integration was like, well, they're, they're going through that, man, we got to help them out. You know what I mean? We want them to stand up on their, their own two feet. And then, and then finally, what I'd say is, and I'm not in the army to, anymore. But, you know, I, I wonder out loud, what are we doing to help our transgendered sisters that are in the military? I, I don't know, but I, I hope that um, that we as sisters in arms are also reaching out to them. What a great answer. Thank you for, for all of that. So I'm, I'm really sad because this is almost to the end. Um, but we do end each episode oh, with boy. the same question. And in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Um, and in thinking through, <laughs> you know, I, I knew this interview was coming and I was, and, and that was the one thing you guys told me, Hey Hopkins, you better be prepared with an answer. And I, <laughs> I have sort of racked my brain. So I asked my best friend who is, um, uh, she's retired, uh, aviator, um, and I'm like, hey, what do you what do you think? And you know, she had not very choice words. She said, "Why don't you call yourself Battle Axe Hopkins? <laughs> you were bold, <laughs> you were bossy, uh, you were brave and a babe." I'm like, mm, I don't think that's what they want to hear. Um, so the best thing I could come up with, and it goes back to a to earlier uh, thing that you were talking about, um, and it's uh, I would probably say it's Amarone Six. Now, what is that? So um, the sixth part is always the the commander, right? So in a in a military unit, you know, you have a call sign, so you might be Vanguard Six or Vigilant Six. The six means you are the commander, right? And gotcha. I think what that's, I think I would I would always have six in my handle because it, to me it's the ultimate sign of leadership, and we should always again be striving towards that and. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's just been part of my DNA and my makeup. The Amarone part is my favorite wine in the world. Um, nice. But it's not, uh, it's not because I'm a lush, which I just might be. Um, <laughs> it's because of the groundbreaking. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting wine. It's a Northern um, Italian wine. It's extremely bold. It's genre busting. It stepped outside the traditional um, 
you know, sort of uh, winemaking uh, processes. Um, you know, it's a process where they uh, basically allow the grape to really, you know, almost get down to raisin. So it, it, ha- it creates that own sweetness. So they, they squeeze everything out of it. And then they re, um, once they've squeezed everything out, then they pour the wine back over and it becomes even bolder and stronger. And so <laughs> in many ways, it rem- you know, I'm, I, yeah, you know, I, the army squeezes a lot out of you. You squeeze a lot out of yourself because we're so impassioned by what we do. But ultimately, it makes that wine even bolder and even more, you know, crafty. And, and, and so for that, that's the best I could come up with was Amarone 6. That bold. That's great. <laughs> so I hope, trust me, I was a little nervous about that question. <laughs> that, no, that is just fantastic. You know, Yvette, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, your leadership, your service. Um, it is just far, it's just top notch. And we're so thankful that you agreed to, to sit with us today. And I don't know if you know this, but you are rounding out our inaugural, um, season on Iron Butterfly. So you will be our last guest. And, um, we are just thrilled and we are so thankful that you joined us today. Oh, God, Megan, I hope now that you've told me that, I'm going to be worried you'll even be able to have a season two after this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, oh, I they're going to come for you. back in droves. <laughs> they're going to come back in droves, let me tell you. I want to thank you, Megan, for for just you and your team and the amazing women of the IC. I'm so proud to know you. I'm so proud to know what you guys are doing. The networking is phenomenal. And all I would say is if I could be of assistance to anyone, you know, by all means, don't hesitate to reach out. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. That means a lot. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.